Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Well, as John says, my name is Ken Cantrell, and we are continuing on our sermon series. I'm going to let them fix that. Uh, we're going to continue on our sermon series in the book of Romans. For those of you that uh, may be new or watching on the podcast, I'm not the normal preacher, um, but Romans is kind of a, a tough book, and so we've given our, our lead pastor, Jeff, a few weeks to kind of step back, clear his head, and prep for the rest of the sermon series. If you haven't been listening to it, it's fantastic. I think it's all available on podcast, and you should go back and kind of listen through it. So, uh, I did a fair bit of reading to prep for today's sermon, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And I brought up two of the commentaries that I, I looked at for this. So They have very different theological approaches, a very different way of looking at the passage that we're going to look at. But they have one thing in common that I thought I would, would point out. Besides the fact that my pointer doesn't work. There we go. All right, so this one, which is not a book I would recommend, it's uh, Herschel Hobbes, Romans, a verse-by-verse study, says, there is no chapter in the book of Romans which is more important and more difficult to interpret than chapter 5. It goes to the very heart of the sin problem and how God deals with it in grace through his Son. The second book, which is one I do recommend, very good, uh, William Barclay, The Letter to the Romans, says... No passage in the New Testament has had such an influence on theology as this. And no passage in the New Testament is more difficult for a modern mind to understand. Now you know why Jeff has actually been off the last couple weeks. (laughs) So these passages are hard for, for two reasons. Sorry. The first is that it can be difficult to understand just what Paul is trying to say. And different church traditions have interpreted some of these passages differently. I think it's important that we as a church learn how to read the Bible well and how to read it honestly. So what I'm going to do as I preach through today is I'm going to spend a little time pointing out um, even interpretations that I may not necessarily agree with. But what I'm going to do to try to make it not confusing is anytime I do that, I'm going to end with the one that I want you to leave with. So... I'll make lists. The last one in the list is the one that I would say, hey, this is, this is the, the good one. If I don't, and that's not clear, just ask me afterwards. Um, it's also hard, though, because of the ideas themselves. Once you kind of parse out what Paul is trying to say, some of them are just hard, especially for our time and our culture. If I listen to five sermons that John Piper preached just on this one passage, he spent five weeks on it, and in every one of them, he began basically by praying for his church, that their hearts would be softened, that God would protect them from heresy, that they would have ears to hear and a willingness to accept what was there. So what I want to do is kind of read through the passage with you. Uh, As I do, you'll understand why we say it can be difficult to understand the passage. So if it's a little weird, like, just bear with it. We're going to walk through it together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the meat of the sermon. So as we do, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. When we're done, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated. Father God, I pray today for, for the church. Uh, protect me from heresy, from speaking it. Protect the church from hearing it. Allow me, God, to preach a word that is, is true to your heart, that is a word that our church needs to hear. Soften the hearts of, of everyone um, to hear that word. Through this, to know you, to love you, to praise you, to see you, uh, and to worship you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Death. Have you ever just sat and philosophically thought about death? We say that two things in life are certain, death and taxes, and the fact that my wife will not like my dry runs. Um, why, though? Like, like, why death and taxes? It's because every person in recorded history, except for Enoch and Elijah, has died. Out of every human experience, the only two things that everyone has in common are birth and death. We might speak different languages, grow up in different countries or different cultures, have different family lives, work different jobs, but every person in this room is dying, and you will die unless Jesus comes back first. So why is death so traumatic and painful? Last week when, when Dan preached, he shared about the emotional agony that he went through when his father died. I know some of you have suffered in the past year or so because of a death. I think everybody has probably suffered in some way because of somebody else's death. A mother or a father, a brother or a sister, a close friend, even a child. But why? If this is simply how the world works, how it has always worked, how it is meant to work, then why does it bring us so much pain? The answer is that we were never meant to die. We fight against, we rail against, and we hate death because we know this is not how the world is supposed to be. So why does death reign? Why is it here? Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, this is where Paul starts. 
He teaches us both why death is in the world and what we're supposed to learn about ourselves from that. So let's look through the passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul teaches that death is here as a result of sin. Now, um, in the passage, we, we saw the word trespass over and over again. Every time you see sin or trespass or rebellion against God, it's all the same thing. He says that one man, Adam, sinned, and death entered the world. And from Adam, it spread to everybody. In the Greek, that word spread can also be translated passed through. And the picture is like one of a fog passing through a building. Like maybe one of those uh, foggers that you use, you stick in your house and you press the button and the fog goes everywhere and kills all the fleas. Like that kind of thing. And now, everybody dies. Because everybody sins. And note that relationship, right? Death is because of sin. So if you die, it's because of sin. Now Paul... He, one of the reasons he's hard to understand is, remember, he's dictating these letters, and he has a little bit of, oh, squirrel moments when he's writing, and that's what happens here. And he thinks to himself, apparently, oh, ooh, I, have a, I think they might have a question. They didn't ask me yet, but I think they have a question. So let me answer the question they haven't asked, and that's where we go next. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. All right, to understand that, we need to ask a question. What is sin? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Simple language. Sin is anything we don't do that we're supposed to do or that we do do that we're not supposed to do sort of thing that um, violates the will of God. Anything we don't do that we're supposed to or that we do that we're not supposed to do. Paul's audience would have said the same thing, basically. They would have said, sin is violating God's law. But by that, they would have meant the law of Moses. So here's the problem. If the law wasn't given until Moses, then people couldn't sin until Moses. But people died before Moses, and death is a result of sin. So obviously they were sinning, but, but they can't sin, and poof, he's just imagining people's heads exploding. So he tries to answer the question. And the problem is he doesn't actually answer it. <laughs> All he does is he says, well, sin was in the world. And that's where one of these problems of interpreting the passage comes up. So there's at least two different ways of interpreting what he's trying to say here. The first one says, hey, like we're in chapter 5. Remember what I said earlier, that the Gentiles sinned without the law of Moses because the law of God was written on their hearts. And so in this view, what he's saying is, remember what I said even though no one is violating the explicit law of God, because it hasn't been given yet, everybody, even the Jews, right, we're violating the law that God wrote on our hearts and so was guilty of sin. That's 100% true. That's what we do. The law of God is written on everybody's heart. But I'm pretty convinced that's not actually what Paul was trying to say here, because it doesn't fit the rest of the chapter. Instead, I think he's trying to say this. Listen, if death reigned, then everybody has to be guilty of sin. And if it's not the sin that comes from explicitly disobeying God, it has to be some other kind of sin. So sit back, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And so that's where we go next. Now, when I read the passage earlier, 
you probably noticed that it's a little confusing because there's a passage about Adam and then a passage about Jesus and Adam and then Jesus and Adam and Jesus. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take all these yellow passages, which are all the passages about Adam, and just pull them all out. We're going to look at them all at one time. So here are the passages about Adam. Verse 12. We already read this one. Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 15. Many died through one man's trespass. 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now there's three ways that you can look at this passage. Here's the first one. That Adam... Can we move on to the next couple slides? All right, so those were the passages. And then um, first way that we can look at that, we can just say that Adam is our example, and we all follow his example. Now, there's truth in this, that we are all like Adam. We all choose to sin. And like Adam, we actively rebel against God. But that doesn't come from this passage. That comes from the rest of the Bible. To make that the point of what was happening in this passage, you basically just have to mangle the passage and ignore it, have this view of what you want to say, and then just kind of like ignore all the verses. And that's the reason I don't like that other book, is because that's kind of what it does. So we're going to scratch that one off and say I don't, I'm pretty sure that's not what this passage is trying to say. But before I talk about the other two views, a quick reminder, none of what I'm about to say is going to take away from what we've learned in Romans 1 through 3. Right? That at an individual level, no matter how you view anything I'm about to say, we all know we're not who we're supposed to be, and there's something wrong with us. We all know we're broken. So this will go a little deeper, but just remember where we've been the past few weeks. Now, kind of leading up to this, because these other two views are really, really, really hard for Westerners to hear, because our culture is crazily individualistic. And both of these views, what they try to do is connect us to something bigger. So before I get to the views themselves, I want to give kind of a couple examples that say even here, like in America, we try to connect ourselves to something big. So first example, each week when NC State wins, right, all the NC State fans say, we won, we're amazing. I really expected some of you to laugh given how often NC State doesn't win, but that's okay. <laughs> you can be where you are, right? But every time they win, right, all the fans say, we won, we're amazing, we're awesome even though all the fans did was sit in front of their TV or sit on the stands and make a lot of noise, right? What they want to do, though, is they want to link themselves to the team, link themselves to the school, link themselves to the Wolf Pack Nation, right? Now, that doesn't work so well when they lose because then it's they lost. But we still, like, try to connect ourselves to this thing about we won. I, I talked to Jeff about this. He said, you know, based on where he grew up, like, he didn't even have a choice. When he was born, he was a Packers fan. That's just the way it works. Right? You're just connected into that. Hey, we do this with the, with the Olympics, right, as a country. When an American athlete wins a gold medal, what do we say? We won a medal. Right? So we do this kind of connection thing all the time. All right, here's the second one. If our president declares war, then we, the citizens of, the American, or of America, are at war, if you're a citizen of, of America. Right? Even if you don't agree with it. Even if you didn't vote for that president. As citizens of the United States, the president has the authority to speak on our behalf and to commit us to certain actions. 
and we're going to feel the consequences of it. Right? In the case of a war, that might be death, our death, the death of a friend. It might be financial burdens, like because of trade restrictions and stuff like that. It might just be anxiety and emotional distress. It might be separation from friends who are in other countries. Like there's, the list goes on and on and on, right? But those are all consequences that we suffer because of our connection to the country and the actions of the president on our behalf. So now, back to how you interpret this passage. Now, the name doesn't really matter. I'm going to give you the fancy name for it. But the, the first of these second options is called the federal headship model. It's almost exactly the same idea as that of the president. And what it says is that Adam is our, here's the fancy word, federal head, and he represented you. When he chose to disobey, all humanity suffered, and all humanity is going to continue to suffer as a result. His punishment, his condemnation is applied to everybody. And this is a super common view. You'll hear it preached in many churches. I, I don't think it's enough. I don't think it goes far enough, especially in the rest of the passage and when you compare it to the rest of Scripture. So the third option, which has a variety of names, I'm just going to call it the spiritual connection model, says this. In some spiritual and mystical way, we are all connected to Adam. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned as well. It's probably going to sound really strange. Let me try again. In some way, because we're all descended from Adam, we are all in Adam. And when he turned away from God, we turned away from God. When he rebelled, we rebelled. Now, this is different than the federal headship model because it doesn't say that Adam acted representing us, and that's all he did, but that we actually sin due to our connection to him. When he rebelled, we rebelled. We live in a really strange world. That's probably really obvious, but, but you know, when you look at the idea of the fantastic and the mythological and supernatural, there's a part of us that desperately wants to believe in these things. Like, just look at our, our books and our TVs and movies and so forth. On the other hand, when I share something like what I just shared, I suspect many of you want to just dismiss it as too out there. Like, that's just weird. Before you do that, though, like, consider all the other stories in the Bible. Because the Bible teaches of a world that is filled with spiritual forces that are beyond what we can see. The New Testament speaks of demons residing within people. It talks about Jesus actually physically talking with the devil. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, prophets and others performed miracles that would violate what we call the laws of nature. Maybe biggest of all, if you're a believer, then the teaching of Christianity is that literally, not figuratively, you have the Spirit of God residing within you, transforming your heart and your mind and influencing every action that you take. Now, given that, is it really so crazy to believe that we might have a spiritual connection to Adam? Now, just so you know I'm not, like, making this up, consider Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. This is talking about this really weird passage in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham meets a priest out of nowhere named Melchizedek, who's a priest of God, and Abraham gives him a tithe. So remember when you read this that Levi is a descendant of Abraham. And here's what it says. One might even say that Levi himself, 
who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this idea of like being in somebody who comes before you and having those actions apply to you is a, is a biblical idea. Now, if you get this, I think one of the most common objections is, hey, that's not fair. That is not fair that I'm held guilty when I wasn't even consciously there. Yeah, that's fair, right? Jeff's going to have to deal with the idea of fairness and what that means in God's economy later in Romans. But for here, just consider the example of a child who is born to a mother who is drug addicted. And we know that sometimes when that happens, the child is born addicted to drugs. Now, all analogies break down somewhere, but the child is in the mother when the mother is making these bad decisions. And those decisions affect the child. Is that fair to the child? Now, it's horrible. It should never happen. And our hearts should be broken for the mother and for the child. But if the child is addicted, the child is addicted. And it needs care, whether we think that's fair or not. Right? Our idea of fairness doesn't affect the truth. Now, that sounds really, really obvious to me. But somehow, I think when we start thinking about God, we often decide whether or not something is true based on whether or not we like it. And whether or not we like it is often defined by whether or not we think it's fair. Now, we ought to wrestle. You ought to wrestle with a passage like this. But my encouragement would be, don't let a question of fairness get in the way of a question of truth and reality. Because the question is not, is it fair? The question is, is it true? Is this the way the world works? Now, the, I think that the most biblical view is this spiritual connection view. And that's how I would encourage you to read the text and think through it. And that's the way I'm going to preach the rest of the sermon. There are plenty of people who would teach the, the federal headship view. Um, Regardless of which one you would go with, though, okay, and this is important, regardless of which one of those you would go with, there are really important, really clear things that you should take away from that passage that there really isn't, like, argument about. And here they are. Because of Adam's trespass, and again, that just means his rebellion against God, sin entered the world and death through sin. That leads to condemnation for everybody, every race, every nation, at all times. And it doesn't just lead to death and condemnation. It made us sinners. That's a Bible word, but it's important. Because it doesn't just make us sin, it made us sinners. It changed our nature. That's our nature, who we are without Jesus. We are at heart rebellious people. Say it one more time. It's not what we do. It's who we are. Now, that's all I preach today. This would be an incredibly depressing sermon. But remember, what I did is I took all those yellow passages that were talking about Adam, and we just talked about Adam. So now let's take all those passages that were talking about Jesus and pull them out as well. So here's the passages about Jesus. Verse 15. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 18, 
One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, let's just sit in this for a minute. Now let's back up for a second. Okay, I think even if we disagree why, even outside the church, right, I think everybody can agree that this world is broken, the death is real, the death hurts, and we're not the people we're meant to be. I've preached this in lots of sermons, but all you have to do is go to the bookstore and look at the self-help section to know that we know that we are not the people we are supposed to be. In fact, I think I can call all those things I just said facts. They're not opinions. But instead of just letting us wallow in that, or as I've occasionally told my kids, suck it up, cupcake, right? Paul points us to the historical fact of Jesus. And he says that by his act of righteousness, his obedience, we can have life. Using the language that was in the passage, we can be made right with the God who created us. We can be justified, have an abundance of grace that covers every failing, whether it's known or unknown to us. Now, to be fair, there's another question that comes out of this text. What is the one act? What did he do? Some people would say that it was a particular moment in his death. Maybe the moment he decided to die. Or maybe it was his resurrection. But I question that. Because what value would a resurrection have had if he didn't die? What value would his death have had if he hadn't lived? And if he hadn't lived the life he did that was perfectly aligned to the will of God and yet suffering the trials of life like with us? value would his life have had if he hadn't been born. So I think that one act is all of it. That one act is the act of God sacrificing himself to be born in the flesh, to live alongside us, to suffer with us, to suffer for us, to die for us, and then to rise to prove that he alone is the Lord of life. And once you parse it out and like you figure out what Paul is trying to say with all his run-on sentences, this is an awesome story. I mean, this is amazing. But it is confusing. And it's confusing to read all at once because way back in verse 14, I kind of skipped it, he says, Adam is a type of the one to come. And he says that, what he's trying to say is that when you see Adam, he's like a shadow or a picture of somebody who's coming later. He's an early form in some way. But then in, those, in that passage, he repeatedly says over and over and over again that the thing that Adam did is like what Jesus did, but it's not. But it, it is, but it, it's not. And that's why it was a little confusing to read, I think. The reason he does that is he doesn't want you to think that Adam and Jesus are like two sides of the same coin. Back in the nursery, we have a whole bunch of, of like cardboard blocks. I don't know if you've ever done this, like built up a pile of cardboard blocks with a bunch of toddlers around you. Like you, you keep them away 10 minutes or so, like you build up this awesome tower and you know what happens next, right? Either you give permission or you don't and some little snot of a, right, they kick it, boom, it's gone, right? Just like that. Ever taken like a bucket of confetti and thrown it up in the air? Easy. Ever tried to then go back and pick up every single piece of confetti that you threw? and maybe organize it by color in a little stack. Um, I haven't, because uh, that, that sounds just obnoxious. 
but hard, right? Destroying things is easy. Building them is hard. If all you did was say, if all that Jesus did through his life and his death and his resurrection was fix what Adam broke, that would be amazing, right? But what he actually did is so much greater. Don't get me wrong, okay? What Adam did, what we did through Adam is huge. It changed the fundamental nature of reality and human nature. Man, it pales besides what Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't just rebuild this toddler tower back to what it was. He didn't just restore what Adam broke. By the way, for every person of every tribe and every nation and every time and every place that believes in him, he went beyond that. He didn't even just like rebuild the Sistine Chapel or the Great Wall or the, I don't know, um, the Taj Mahal, you know, from those blocks. He created something new. He created a new nature within us, a temple worthy of him to dwell in. He recreated you if you are a follower of him. Look beyond that, though. Like, look at verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So back in Genesis, we are told that God made us caretakers of creation. Jesus makes us rulers. Like, I didn't mean a ruler right now, okay? Like while you're living. This is rulers with Christ who rules over life everlasting for all eternity. Praise God. I mean, like I said, this is the coolest story in the history of the world. And the best part about it is, it's true. Like, it's not a story. This is the way the world works. Now, if I, if I graphed this sermon, because I'm like an engineer, I like to graph things, right? And I graphed what, in my mind, was supposed to be the emotional roller coaster of what this would look like. Um, somewhere in there, we would have moved from, like, intellect to emotion, and we'd be at, like, the high point right now. I don't know if that's where you are, but when I preach it, that's where I feel. Like, we're at, like, the high point. Um, problem is, we still have two more verses to go. Um, And there's one more problem that we have to deal with in the text. So just kind of bear with me as we sort of coast down to the end. Let's start with that problem. If you look at just verse 18, it says that what Jesus did will lead to justification and life for all men. And in verse 19, it says that the many will be made righteous. So is this passage teaching universalism? Is it saying that everybody is going to go to heaven? And I've heard it said that in the history of the church, every major heresy came from people reading their Bible. That's a pretty cool quote, so I'll say it again. Right? Every major heresy in the history of the church came from people reading their Bible. And I don't know if it's true. It sounds good. But I suspect it probably is. Because reading your Bible without context, right, and without reading... Like, basically all of it sometimes, um, almost always leads to trouble. And here, I think, before we can read 18 and 19, you have to read 17. 17 says this, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Those who reign in life are those who receive the free gift of righteousness through Christ Jesus. The rest of Scripture 
makes it really, really clear that receiving the gift comes through faith. So in verse 18, all men are all men who have received the gift. In 19, the many are the many who have received the gift through faith in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that everybody's going to go to heaven. And he's also being really, really clear that Jesus isn't one of many options. He says that through one man, people will be made righteous. Here's another weird thought for you. I think lots of weird thoughts. Here's a weird thought for you. There are two races of homo sapiens walking the earth today. There are two groups of people with fundamentally distinct and different natures. There are those in Adam, and let's be clear, we were all initially in Adam, and who are by nature rebellious and opposed to the things of God. And then there are those who through faith, who through no act of their own, have received the free gift of grace and who are in Christ, and who will be rulers in life eternal. If your friends and your neighbors and your family, they don't know this, you need to tell them. There is no way to be made right with our Creator other than through Jesus. And having faith in Jesus comes, except like in the most extraordinary of circumstances, from hearing about Jesus. Hearing about Jesus happens because somebody shared about Jesus. If you love those around you, you've got to share this message. Let God use you as His instrument to help people be reborn from death to life. All right, last two verses, verses 20 and 21. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Last two verses, Paul comes back to that, oh, squirrel moment that he had way back at the beginning. And he answers a question again, that he thinks people might have, but they haven't actually asked yet. Here's the question. If we stand condemned before God without the law of Moses, then why would God even give the law? It's a good question. It's not the question I had when I read it. It's a good question. The answer is that the Jewish law or any law that we establish for ourselves as a guide that tells us what we're supposed to do those exist just to show us how broken we are and how desperately we need God to make us whole. You know this is true, right? You know you have broken every single New Year's commitment that you have ever made about how to be a better person. Every time you've gone to bed, you've thought, tomorrow's going to be different. This is never going to happen again. I'm setting the rule. You've broken it every time. This is the purpose of the law, right? To make us aware of our sin. And as we become more and more and more aware of our sin and how desperately we cannot make ourselves right, how we cannot be the people we're supposed to be, the more glory that God gets. That's why it exists, to make us aware of our sin, make us give glory to God for His awesome power in salvation. All right, the band can start coming back up if you'd like. Um, as I ask my last question here, that you might be thinking, here's another question you haven't asked yet, but you might be. Okay, if sinning brings more glory to God, 
because it gives God more to forgive. <laughs> hey, shouldn't we just sin more? Because then God will get more glory. That would be awesome. And actually, that's where I'm going to stop because that's exactly where verse 6 picks up next week. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are a great and an awesome God. And I don't like sin. Um, I don't like death. I don't like the idea of death. I don't like the experience of watching those around me die. Uh, but I, in some way, God, I would even thank you for how that can point us to you, how that can make us aware of our need for you. You're amazing. Who you are and what you've done and what you've given for us is amazing. Open our eyes, God, to see you, to know you, to love you, and to worship you. Change our hearts. Make us more like you. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus, amen.